Acts 16, as Pastor Isaac just said, if you want to turn or tap your way, like Isaac just said, we have been in a series called Kaleidoscopic Gospel, where we've been uh, looking at the theme, the topic of evangelism, this idea that those of us who identify as the people of Jesus, as Christians, that we have been tasked, we have been called by God to uh, not just hold the gospel for ourselves or for our Sunday gatherings to be a sort of little holy huddle, but we have been tasked with this command by Jesus to go out into the world and make disciples of all the nations, to invite others to know Jesus as Savior and as King. And our hope with this kaleidoscopic gospel series has been to offer a little bit of a gentle corrective, a gentle corrective to the way that many of us who have been raised in or around the church have grown up thinking about that work of evangelism, of telling other people about Jesus. For many of us raised in and around the church, evangelism can really be summarized in some form of a, a, the delivery of this kind of a, a one-size-fits-all speech or monologue directed at the other person. If many of you have ever heard of uh, evangelism explosion, if you don't know it by name, uh, you may know by the, the leading question that drives this, evangelism that was based on a, a series of questions that all started with going up to a stranger and asking, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? I can't imagine any time I'd be at a coffee shop and someone would ask me this question that I would go fairly well. But this is a whole framework where then after, depending on how they answer that question, you then move through. If they say no, you go to this thing. If they say yes, if they say I don't know, then you move your way through. A perfectly built out system, prepackaged and given and memorized by people as a way to tell people about Jesus. Others of you that have maybe um, worked in Crusaders for Christ or Crew had a prepackaged kind of form of telling the story of the gospel through what was called the four spiritual laws or four spiritual truths. The first kind of building built out of this was that kind of, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And then you move to the second and third and the fourth. Again, a prepackaged. Now, I'm not saying this to be overly critical of these styles, but our hope has been over the past five weeks in this series to offer a little bit of a, a gentle corrective that as we look at the earliest stories of evangelism in the church, in the book of Acts, we find that evangelism is this task that happens within pre-existing relationships where individuals, those who've been called by Jesus, identify or speak to how Jesus fulfills the deepest longings of those individuals as they come into contact with them. And as this happens in Acts 16, we found this not being done as a monochrome sales pitch or even by philosophically deconstructing the views of others, but by enacting and proclaiming the multifaceted beauty and truth and power, and today as we close out, hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to look and ask, what does it mean that Jesus, that the gospel is this message about and of hope? Acts 16, beginning in verse 25. If you want to join me, for those of you that are able and standing as we read God's word, the, way that, the reason we do this is much like we stand when we sing or we raise our hands in worship, is this is a simple way of acknowledging with our bodies that what we're reading from right now is something far different uh, than any other book, that we believe that God speaks through this story, through this book. Acts 16 Beginning in verse 25, picking up from last week where Paul and Silas had just been imprisoned, Acts 25, 16, 25 says, About midnight, 
Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were were broke open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors had been opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cries out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights. And he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night. He washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house. He set food before him. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for what this series hopefully has been doing in each of our hearts, of helping us to see the radiance and the beauty, the truth, the power, and the hope of the gospel. God, we pray that as we close out this series today, that you would help us in examining the story of the Philippian jailer to receive hope for ourselves and to be a people of hope in the midst of a hopeless world. Guide us, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, over our time in Acts 16, as a bit of a recap, we looked at so far three different stories and with them three different facets of the gospel of Jesus and what that brings to people. Back in the story of Timothy, we looked at the beauty of the gospel as it came out in his relationships with his mother and grandmother, with the believing church in the city of Lystra, and even with the apostle Paul himself. We moved on to then looking at the story of Lydia, who discovered the truth of the gospel in her conversations with the apostle Paul. And then last week with the slave girl, we saw an experience of the power of the gospel as she was set free, not just from spiritual oppression, but human oppression. Today, as we look at this final story of and about hope, we look at the story of the Philippian jailer. And to chart the direction of where we're going to go today, you'll see behind me a little bit of a roadmap to our passage. In verses 25 through 27, we see a little bit of a story about hope being shaken. 28 through 32, hope found. And 33 through 34, hope lived out, or hope expressed. Hope shaken, hope found, and hope expressed. And so let's start with this idea of hope being shaken, looking back at the story of the Philippian jailer there in the prison that night. Now, we don't know much about the jailer, but assuming what we can pull together from how we know about history at the time of the early church, that more than likely, and more than likely, absolutely we can assume, that the jailer was a former soldier of Rome. See, all civil and civic jobs in the Roman Empire were held by men who had formerly been uh, soldiers within the Roman army. These are retired veterans. They put in their years, and now either because of um, some kind of wound or because of age, they've retired out from active service, and they kind of return home, and they take some, some role working within the world. And for this Philippian jailer, that was uh, being a jailer. And so this man, just, I mean, just right there, understanding this man had been a soldier, given his life to the Roman Empire, 
He's a man who's sworn his allegiance to the empire of Rome. And with it, the hope of Rome, the Lord Caesar. He'd given his life of years of service in Rome's continual wars as they continually sack and expand the Roman Empire. He himself has surely killed. He has surely seen many friends killed. And now he's finally settled in. He's got the cush job at the end of the retirement plan. He's settled in. He's got a household. He's got everything together after a life of giving himself to Rome. And so now at this point in his life, this prison in many ways serves as a symbol of his hope in Rome as a symbol of his hope in Caesar, the captivating vision of Rome's global reign through Caesar and his small part of it, this prison was in essence his job, the embodiment of all that he had given his life to. We could say all of his proverbial eggs were in the basket of Rome and in Caesar. It was his hope. Now for many of us, no one here likely serves as at a jail or has their ultimate hope as being Caesar and Rome, but we all live our lives aimed at some future idealized vision for ourselves. For the jailer, it was the peace of Rome. For some of us, it's the pursuit of retirement and getting, pulling that off as quickly as possible. For many, it's a political vision within our day and age, but just as much so, these, this, this hope, this guiding vision about uh, the relationship that, me, that we may one day have, the marriage that we find ourselves in, the hope that we have for our children, and the sort of people that they may become, or even our hope around the career that you have. One of the great ones set before us is what are you going to do with your life? And the hope, the vision is some sort of role, some sort of position that you'll finally work yourself into and that is when you will be actualized. You will have everything together. Hope is a messy word, but everyone has some form of it. Whether hope is, we refer to as just some kind of general sense of optimism. Hope is being those goals which motivate our life, the wishes that we have for ourselves, or as many philosophers talk about hope, as the guiding meta-narrative that we give ourselves to. This story that we find ourselves as being one small part to, a story maybe built around Rome or built around our job or built around our family. Hope is messy in how we define it, but at the end of the day, as Martin Luther wrote 500 years ago, everything done in the world is done by hope. You get out of bed in the morning. You move yourself through your day. You show up at work in hope for the paycheck. You change the diapers in the hope that one day you won't have to change diapers anymore. Every single relationship, every time that you go out for coffee or you have someone over for dinner is an act done in hope that that relationship is going to continue and deepen. Everything in the world is done by hope. And that hope, as it is put, hope floats. In the midst of all of the challenges of life, those visions that we have for our life and the sort of person and and place that we want to be or the, the kind of overriding narrative that we give ourselves to, that thing is a powerful source that floats in the midst of all of the waves and the conflict of our lives until that hope, in fact, does sink, which it does sooner or later. Another famous quote about hope is that hope is the last thing to get lost. That life can strip away so much of, of all of it. I mean, this past year, that can strip away so much of your life through suffering and challenges. And that hope can be this riding thing that is the last thing to get lost until it does get lost. See, as powerful as hope is, sooner or later it sinks. Sooner or later it is lost. And that is the hope that kills you. That hopelessness. 
And for the jailer, this is what that earthquake has brought about. This earthquake shook more than the prison's foundations. It shook the foundation of his hope. It's evident in this that upon the the earthquake and seeing the doors open, presuming the loss of these prisoners, the first thing that he goes to do is to take his own life. Immediately reaching a place of hopelessness, his part in the Roman vision had failed. His part as a faithful soldier to Caesar in in, in the vision of the empire had failed. And so the only way out or the best way out was to take his own life. Now, this shaken hope of the jailer is not an alien feeling for any of us here. In many ways, this past year has served as an earthquake, shaking the hope of many of us to pieces, the pandemic and all that it's wrought, or even in the midst of this past year, those personal moments of loss and betrayal and failure, this isn't a moment where for many of us, we would be lying if we didn't say there was at least some small voice of hopelessness, if not a cacophony of screaming in our ears and minds and hearts of hopelessness. We feel this deep resonance with the Philippian jailer who now looking around the prison sees that the prisoners are gone and the building has fallen apart. This hopelessness is why you can find the deep resonance that so many of us had uh, with Bo Burnham's uh, insight, his Netflix special, if you had seen this. The resounding thing of that story, of that special was about hopelessness in the midst of this world. All the little songs that he does. That is how the world works, is one of utter hopelessness in the face of what our world looks like. His song, Welcome to the Internet, is for all of the promise that those of us growing up as millennials had in the future vision of what the internet would do. It has brought, if not more, it has made the world a worse place than a better one. His final, second to last song, um, that funny feeling is that residing feeling that all of us have as we see certain things that the world is coming to an end. This hopelessness, and, and the best thing that, that Bo can do, and the reason we resonate with his special, is the best thing we can do is laugh to keep ourselves from crying. This is why uh, Ted Lasso, uh, sec- second season just started a couple weeks ago. Uh, another reason why in the past year, not just Bo Burnham's special on one side, but the Ted Lasso, the show of this increasingly hopeful and charismatic coach, has again resonated, not just because it has incredible comedic writing, which it does, but because... We were so hungry and continue to be for someone who embodies hope. And so just like 30 minutes with Ted Lasso once a week feels like it's this restoration to our souls because we live our lives in a very much hopeless place. This feeling just resonates to just continue to pull out like the reasons why I'm certain that this is where we are. Uh, Robin Shaw uh, one of her, she went uh, viral last November uh, with a TikTok where she sat down halfway crying, halfway laughing with a giant glass of wine as she read out loud all of her unfulfilled New Year's Eve's resolutions from 2019-2020. So as she's crying and like laughing through this, the first one was travel more in 2020. And she had been locked within the tiniest of studio apartments. Make more money. She had been unemployed since March. Be more social. <laughs> nope. <laughs> more time with grandma. And both of her grandmothers passed away in 2020. So here she is laughing and crying. And so many of us, maybe we're not at the full place of being dep- of depression and suicidal ideation or even acting out on that like the Philippian jailer. But many of us, like Bo Burnham or like Robin, we laugh our way through our tears and through our anger at the state of our lives and the state of the world. The vision that we had for our lives and for this world 
that this past year has shaken away the foundation of it and has left us with very little hope at all. It has left many of us here, many of us in our city, if not all of us in our city, with some sense of hopelessness and aimlessness and a numbness, asking, where do we go from here? Yes? Verse 28, Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. Before the hopeless jailer can take his life, he hears the voice of the man who had been singing songs of hope just hours ago when he himself should have been the one that was hopeless. And here after the earthquake, the bonds have been broken, but Paul and Silas stick around, maybe even keeping the other prisoners to stay with them. Did you catch this? These guys are singing songs of worship and an earthquake shows up that breaks the doors open and breaks the bonds if they had any reason to go, I think God wants us to leave. <laughs> they had it. And yet they stay. It seems Paul and Silas, in the midst of being locked in this hopeless situation and even now having a way out, their concern for their fellow prisoners and for this jailer caused them to stay. They don't assume that God's will is to go out because to go back to week one, they discern that the will of God is about the mission of God, not about their safety or comfort. And so what happens here is that in the midst of them staying then, the jailer runs in, falls on his face, and he asks the greatest question that one can ask. What must I do to be saved? This man who's just had his foundation shaken to the core, everything that he held dear, his guiding vision for the sort of person that he wanted to be, the life he wanted to give himself to, he now here sees that it's failed and he's looking for a firmer foundation. And the example that he just had a few hours ago was from Paul and Silas, these individuals who should have been hopeless and yet were singing songs of hope. These men who he knows was arrested going back to last week because as that... Um, the woman with the, uh, the oppressing spirits would speak about them that these men are proclaiming the way of salvation of the most high God. He's putting these things together and now in this moment he asks, what must I do to be saved? And it is the singing of Paul and Silas in the midst of their hopelessness, singing in their shackles that leads to him asking this question to them. This is an example of what, for some of you that picked up the recommended book for this series, um, Surprise the World by Michael Frost, he talks about questionable living, questionable living, that we live lives that lead people to ask questions like this. And for Paul and Silas, their questionable living as they found themselves shackled and imprisoned was to sing songs of hope in the midst of their suffering. And so seeing this, he says, these guys have something that I don't have. And so what is it? What must I do to be saved? And Paul invites him, to find a new hope. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. The, the astounding nature of what Paul has just called this jailer to and saying, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved is, is what he's saying is this guy whose whole life had been built on believing in and hoping in Caesar, hoping in Rome, the, the Greek word that Luke is writing the book of Acts in all of the New Testament in that we so regularly translate as believe or faith or trust most regularly was used in the Roman world as the word for allegiance or loyalty to a commanding officer or king. Do you see what Paul's borderline calling him to treason here? 
This Philippian jailer who had given his whole life pledging it in allegiance to Rome and Caesar says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, now pledge your allegiance to the Lord Jesus. No longer Lord Caesar, but Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. He invites him to find Jesus as that new resounding hope for his life. To set Jesus now as the guiding vision, then to go back to Martin Luther's quote, in, in which he now builds his whole life around. Everything that he does is done in hope, and specifically, Jesus as that hope. This is what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved, is to build your entire life in allegiance to him as saving king and saving Lord. But this is no spiritual optimism. This is no pie in the sky, by and by, Jesus has got this kind of thing that's just kind of built on just a general sort of optimism. Henry Nouwen, uh, he was an incredible Christian writer. Um, he spent his life uh, specifically, he left a, a really um, big kind of ministry of writing books and like uh, working the circuit and kind of, you know, be the celebrity. He was on his way to like the celebrity kind of Christian speaker thing. And he walked away from it and, and gave himself to his life serving with those that society had rejected for all manner of reason. If anybody understands the hope of the gospel. Even more than that, Henry Nouwen was a, a celibate gay priest. And so he built his life around a hope in who Jesus was, giving himself entirely to the way of Jesus. And so he writes regularly about the hope. And I believe as, as for who he was and what he gave himself to has a voice on hope that many of us ought to hear. He wrote this. He says, the optimist speaks about concrete changes in the future. The optimist speaks about co concrete changes in the future. The person of hope lives in, in, in the moment with the knowledge and trust that all of life is in good hands. There's a co comparison and contrast that he's doing here. To be a person of hope is not to be a general optimist. An optimist is the sort of person who they've got this kind of concluding vision of what they're giving them. So there's some concrete change that's just around the corner. And that's what they build their lives on. On the other side of that, the person of hope, what we're talking about here today is the sort of person who isn't just looking around the corner for what concrete changes are yet to come, but someone who's actually present in the moment of what they're going through, all the while believing and trusting with the knowledge that their life is in good hands, regardless of what's around the corner. And the basis of that knowledge and trust, as he continues to write, that we are in good hands is predicated on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What Peter in his letter calls our living hope. You see, you can find some sort of hope. And even some sort of hope that can, in some ways, not get pulled down by the waves of everything. One that does not sink. But the whole thing is, is it, it, it's very easy for that to become a delusion. To have some kind of hope that you're giving yourself to for all of your life and nothing can ever bring it down. It has to have a certain level of not being bound up in reality in order for it not to get bogged down by the weight of life. But you're in danger of building your life on something that's delusion. That's the sort of person who does not live in the world, who does not name reality for what it is, but has some kind of fashion and form of what they're building their lives around that continually changes. It's the sort of thing conspiracy theories are built off of. And what we find here is not this delusion of building our lives around something that's false and fake, but something that's built around the resurrection of Jesus. Something that is predicated and built around the historical 
bodily resurrection, the reality of an empty tomb. That is the basis for Christian hope. It's not that, that God generally thinks that, that he's got a plan for my life. It's not generally that the universe is at work within the world. Anybody can believe that. Why do you believe that? So often, you'll, I've had conversations with people that, that aren't Christians, kind of spiritual, but not religious, and they give themselves to some kind of belief that, that the universe has a plan, that God is at work, and, and how do you know that? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is what enables you to actually have something than which you can point to and say why. Anybody can believe that, that there's some kind of creator that's on your side, some kind of spiritual being that's, that's got it for you. But where is your basis for that belief? And for Christians, we base this in the bodily resurrection of Jesus and the empty tomb and the good news of Easter. This is why the Apostle Paul, in one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, in essence says that Jesus is no good to me dead. He is not an adequate basis of hope if the resurrection did not happen. Because you are building yourself on a delusion, on a conspiracy. But if it's true, if the resurrection is true, and for those of us who believe into Jesus, and we give our allegiance and faith and hope to him as saving Lord and King, then the good news of his resurrection now becomes good news for our own resurrection as well. And based out of that, we can now believe that we are in the good hands of a father who loves us. And that no matter what we go through, whether that's imprisonment and shackles or a pandemic year, that we can have this living hope that lives in the moment. That Christian hope is not us pretending that we're not going through everything. That it lives in the moment with all of its sorrow, all of its anger, all of its confusion, all of its loss and grief and fear. And yet all the while is still able to sing in the midst of our shackles. And so for those of you that find yourself in a place of hopelessness after this past year, if you are a Christian and you find yourself that the hopelessness is the resounding voice in your head, my invitation to you, as it's been what I've been trying to work with in my own heart, is to allow the resurrection to sing even louder. In the midst of what you're going through, where you feel like you are in a season of death, and that's it where you feel like you're in a season of perpetual, endless cycle, a cul-de-sac of suffering, then that, that, that may not end. And yet the resurrection in, in, in invites you to have a hope that exists beyond this, but is not one that's predicated on a delusion, but based off the fact of the matter of the resurrection of Jesus. And, and that is the work of being able to sing in the midst of our suffering, is allowing that resurrection truth to work deeply within us. This is why, so often, we're going off, to, on, on an off note here. This is why there, the necessity of starting your day, hear me, in some form of prayer or reading scripture or even just stopping and reminding yourself of the resurrection is your core hope before you open your news app, before you open your phone, before you do anything else is a vital necessity. Those first few moments of your day set you up with the sort of hope that you're going to be giving yourself to. And the resurrection, the story of Scripture, the person of Jesus, is, is, is of necessity if we're going to live in a hopeless world. For the Apostle Paul, they were doing, their singing was, was far more than just for the guys next to them. It was just as much for themselves. For some of you here, you, are, you don't identify as a Christian. You got dragged along 
And now you're hearing this guy that's, that's yelling about hope and hopelessness and Ted Lasso and how that all fits in. Here's my, my invitation to you today is, is to lean in. If you find yourself, you don't identify as a Christian, and maybe you came along for whatever reason because this past year has got you to the place of hopelessness. You're there with Robin Shaw crying and laughing at the same time with a big glass of wine. I would invite you, continue talking to your friends that are Christians. If you don't have any, come and talk to me. And and this is the big one. Investigate the basis of the resurrection of Jesus and talk to people about for whom the resurrection actually means something in their life beyond just a historical fact, but a present embodied reality. Lean in. There is hope to be found in the midst of your situation, in the midst of your life. And as this series is about evangelism, I just want to point out three things here. As we seek to become better evangelists, better people bringing the the message of Jesus to our city. What we see with Paul and Silas here are three things. The first is that they're living questionably. To go back to Michael Frost's book. Singing in their suffering, singing while in shackles, praying while they're in prison. This is living questionably, living the sort of life that causes people to ask questions about who in the world are you? The second thing is to not leave hopeless places. To not leave hopeless places. Even when the shackles may open and you feel like you've got an out and it seems evident maybe that God's even giving you an out. To go back to our first week, to believe that the will of God is predicated and set in the mission of God. Don't leave. Because that's exactly what enables you to do the third thing, which is as you're asked, as you're in conversation, to point people to the hope of the Lord Jesus over and above any other hope. I love considering and thinking more about the Philippian jailer whose whole life had been lived in hope to the Lord Caesar, this invitation to now give his hope to the Lord Jesus. When you can compare and contrast what the Lord Jesus and the Lord Caesar were all about, you find completely opposite, a reversal of two ways of being. Caesar demanded everything of the Philippian jailer, specifically that he would kill and even die for him while doing nothing for him but always calling him to give more in the hope of something that he would never experience. Jesus, on the other hand, doesn't call for the Philippian jailer to kill and even die. He allows himself to be killed and died for the jailer. And even more than that, does not stand off at a distance, but has promised himself in the the incarnation, in the promise of his return, in the the redemption of all things, and even through the empowering presence of his Holy Spirit, that whereas Caesar was distant, Jesus is close. Whereas Caesar demanded everything and gave nothing, Jesus gave everything and invites him to live in light of that gift. Caesar and Jesus are completely different. And here's the thing. Not many in our city are living for Caesar, but there is some other Lord they're living after. Something that demands everything and gives nothing in return. Something that always says more, more, more and is never satisfied. It may be their work. It may be a relationship. It may be their body and they're working their body to to unhealthy extremes to try to fit the L.A. stereotype. The invitation for those of us armed with the good news of Jesus is to demand that there is a better Lord, not just in the fact that he's the resurrection gift, but that in what he demands out of you is is to receive what he's done for you. This is what we've been given. We've been sent to hopeless places, hopeless times, so that we may, in the midst of people's hopelessness, say, we are still here, like Paul. 
and we live questionably. But beyond singing, what does it look like to live questionably as the people of Jesus? How is hope expressed? We see it in verses 33 and 34. Where, like Lydia, we find the hope of the gospel is expressed in ways that look exactly like the four marks of a disciple of Jesus, as we call them here at Collective Church. She does, or, or the, well, Lydia did it two weeks ago, and now the Philippian jailer is doing it as well. What happens when people receive the truth of the gospel? When people receive the hope of the gospel, it's not pie in the sky, so now I can watch my news preference and in the midst of everything falling apart, I can go, Jesus has got this. It's so that I can become the sort of person who is more and more shaped and changed like Jesus. How does this show up? We see in his baptism, he takes the first step of a whole life of being a follower of Jesus. That his, his obedience, our obedience to Jesus, is an act of hope to him. It's enacted trust that our works, our obedience, what we're giving ourselves to, that which we say yes to, and that which we say no to, so we can say yes to something, is enacted hope that new creation is springing up in the midst of our lives. To be a follower of Jesus is all about where your hope is. Similarly, not just being a follower of Jesus, but being a disciple maker to his own family and his household is that the hope that I found in Jesus is a hope for you as well. Not personally just for me, but for you. We find him stewarding his home and even his, his fridge, he didn't have a fridge, but his food as the jailer opens up his home in service to the people of Jesus. He opens up his home. He opens up his, his kitchen cabinet. He serves them with a meal. Stewardship, like discipleship, is an act of hope. What you do with your money, with your resources, with your time, that's what reveals your hope. If I've been talking about hope all this time, yeah, I don't really know what my hopes are, go sit down and look at your bank statement. That will show you what your hope is in. Go, go look at your calendar this past week. That will show you what your hope is in. If, you're, if your time has been spent largely in, um, in, 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 in stepping out of reality, <laughs> that's hopelessness. A life that is overgiven to uh, entertainment and some form of, of, um, of uh, stepping out of reality for a little while. I'm all for Entertainment video games. I just talked about Ted Lasso and Bo Burnham. I'm all for entertainment. If that is the resounding filler in your calendar, then, then you may have the opposite of some other hope. It might be a, a hopelessness. And so let's go to some other reality for a little while. But look at your bank statement. Look at your time. Look at what you're giving yourself to. That will show you what your hope is. And we see immediately after receiving the good news of the gospel, the jailer now stewards all that he has in favor of the mission of God by serving God's people. Even more than that, we find him also acting as a family member in this. This jailer who formerly saw these, these Jewish proselytes coming and talking about this rabbi Lord Jesus guy, former enemy is now being treated as family on a racial divide, on a political divide, socioeconomic, on every imaginable level. The jailer and Paul and Silas were on the opposite sides of the Street, And here you have enemies now acting as family, eating a meal with one another, rejoicing in the work of Jesus. See, the church is a family that's united in our hope in the resurrection of Jesus and the new family that he's making us. So hope expressed 
doesn't just look like optimism. It doesn't look like a general cheeriness. It looks like a life of discipleship to Jesus, following him, inviting others to know him, living our lives in stewardship and resource, using our resources for his kingdom, the world that he's building, and seeing others as family members that we formerly saw as enemies. So as we close our time in Acts 16 today, in this kaleidoscopic gospel series that we've been in over the past five weeks, I mean, just looking over this chapter, it is hard to imagine a, a more diverse group than the individuals that we've seen over the past few weeks. Timothy, who came from this divided family of his mother and grandmother being Jewish, his father being kind of this pagan Greek. Lydia, who's this affluent, independent woman, slave girl, who's the opposite of affluent, independent. She's enslaved and poor. And this Philippian jailer, the one who sides with the dominating empire. This kaleidoscope of individuals, of race and social status, of desires and drives and longings, this kaleidoscope here. And yet the hope of this series in Acts 16 has been to show, Acts 16 gives us just one little example of what is the larger thread throughout all of church history. Is people coming from diverse backgrounds and all finding their diverse searches and longings and hopes being met in the one gospel of Jesus Christ. For Timothy, it was the beauty of the gospel. Finding and seeing Jesus as being the radiance of God, the beauty of God in Jesus as reflected through his relationships with his mother and his grandmother, with his local church family, with the Apostle Paul. The beauty of Jesus expressed in relationships is what brought him into the gospel. Lydia, not the beauty, but the truth of the gospel. Finding Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. As she discovered this through discourse and conversation and the preaching of the apostle Paul, the slave girl who experienced the power of the gospel. Jesus as being the reigning and ruling Lord over all powers and principalities. And his power experienced through the words, works, and wonders that he brings through his people in the world. And today the jailer who found the hope of the gospel. In the living and resurrected Jesus who brings hope in the midst of our most hopeless of situations and moments. And so as we live our lives in this kaleidoscopic city, a city that is awash in, in different sorts of pluralism and spiritual beliefs and all these things under the sun, and it can be exhausting to think how this one guy, Jesus, regardless of the fact that we believe he's the resurrected Lord and King, can somehow be the answer to every single one of these, that Acts 16 gives us the prototype in which it is possible. That the gospel of Jesus meets everyone in all of their longings, all of their searchings. And the work of being an embedded missionary is to have the assumption and the imagination that it does. And so here's the thing. I understand, man, we started this series and it was like, you know, masks indoors weren't a thing. And those came back. And I, talking to some of you that have just moved here or, or you're just kind of, I don't know what to do with a series on evangelism when we're still kind of making our way through the pandemic thing. All that to say there are relationships in which you are around. At the beginning of the series, I asked you to write down three people. I just didn't name those. If you didn't, even right now, to think of those three. To begin to move towards them, to identify, is it truth? Is it power? Is it beauty? Is it hope? What is the longing and drive and the desire of their heart? And what does it mean for me to display that beauty, to speak that truth, to point to that hope and to enact that power? 
If you are a follower of Jesus, for those of you here that are Christians, this is, this is your calling. This is why God has you in Los Angeles. This is why he has you in your apartment, in your home, on your street, on your block, in your vocation, in your work, the coffee shop that you go to, the friends that you have, the interests that you have. God is intricately working and wiring and, and at work within these that you might declare the gospel to these people. To proclaim that there is a resurrection hope that is at work within a hopeless world. And so as we move out into our city, my hope is that we might move out of this series now with an assumption not with a prepackaged spiel that we're trying to show people that Jesus is worth taking on and trying out, like a new soda brand. But that we might show people how actually the longings of their hearts are exactly what Jesus is there to offer. And if you're a Christian, it's because you've experienced that for yourself. And so you have to make a decision. Either this is purely personal, subjective belief for yourself and it's good for you, which means it's not good news for everyone, and you're probably deluded, or that there's something to the resurrection in the fact that throughout generations and generations and generations, diverse people from all walks of life have found Jesus as the answer to exactly what they're looking for. Let's pray.